Hey there, and welcome to the Classical Liberal Project. I'm Danielle. I'm here with Jonathan Casey, the chair of the Classical Classical Liberal Caucus. Hello. Um, and Cole here uh, with Huskies for Liberty, the uh, Students for Liberty group at the University of Washington here in Washington State. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> uh, now, Cole, well. you're you're the chair of Huskies for Liberty. Yeah, I'm the president. So president, we're, okay. yeah, we're in what's called a registered student organization on campus, which means that we're an organization, a club that is recognized by the university and there's certain privileges that come with that. Um, but all the RSOs have constitutional documents that they have to set up. So I'm, I'm the president of the club under that system. Ah, cool. Gotcha. Now, uh, from what I understand, the it's the University of Washington, correct? That is um, correct. So the so uh, from what I understand, they have a really bad record on free speech, right? They're ranked one of the worst. So kind of tell us the story about all that, how that's kind of come about. What's been the issues going on there? Sure thing. So uh, the place that metric comes from is from FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And for the past two years, they've done an annual ranking of a bunch of different colleges, universities in the United States. Uh, for how well they respect free speech, what the state of free speech on those campuses is. And so for 2022 to 2023, uh, UW ranked 188th out of 203 schools. Mm. And we are the very bottom of the list in terms of all public schools on that list. Um, wow. As people may be aware, uh, private institutions don't have to hold to the First Amendment. So private institution, but public schools do. So one thing I like to tell people is that what that really means when you think about it is that of all the schools that are legally obligated to respect free speech, UW is the worst at that. Gotcha. What does that, what does that entail? Like what is, what, how, what effect does that have on campus? What are the real world issues that you run into trying to, to deal with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess where that ringing comes from, um, fire started with a mass survey of more than 44,000 students across the country at these different schools. And they were asked questions about their comfort level expressing themselves on campus, whether they're comfortable publicly disagreeing with peers, with professors. And it also asked questions about tolerance levels for what FIRE calls illiberal forms of protest. These are things like shouting down speakers to prevent them from speaking or physically blocking people from going into a space to hear somebody speak. And UW students are too tolerant of illiberal forms of protest and very uncomfortable with expressing themselves openly when it comes to controversial topics. Now, that's all just abstract data, but I think it's really backed up by the stories that we hear on campus um, about students that, yeah, do not feel comfortable expressing themselves on campus. There's a sort of political hegemony that goes on at a lot of college campuses where certain views just aren't really given the time of day. Um, and in terms of our own activism, I'd say the place where we see it most often is we'll do advertising for our cl club. We'll put posters up on telephone poles, that kind of thing. And for a while that was okay. But once people really started to notice our presence, uh, those posters almost always get torn down very quickly. Um, you know, we've had people call us fascists. Um, people just really react very strongly to what all of us in the group really feel should be not that controversial of an issue. 
like free speech is something that nominally everybody should support. In fact, I spoke to Sean Stevens at FIRE who developed the methodology behind the FIRE survey to establish these rankings. And he said something really interesting that resonated me. He said with me, he said that when you are designing a survey like this, you have to be really careful with these abstract concepts. Because if you go up to pretty much anybody and you ask, hey, how do you feel about free speech? Or how important do you think free speech is? Of course, you're going to get everybody for the most part saying, yeah, free speech is really important. I love free speech, super good. So what you have to do though, is take it out of the abstract. And when you start giving people specific examples saying, well, what if a speaker came to campus and said X, Y, Z, then people get a little more, eh, well, maybe that's not okay. Maybe this is okay. Maybe not that. And that's where you really start to see the problem, which is that people have this idea of free speech in their head, but they're not very good at putting it into practice. Uh, everybody cares about free speech when it's their own speech that's being suppressed. But when it's speech that they don't like, they're a lot more willing to um, say, no, that's not okay. Um, so again, that's that's fairly broad. And there's anecdotes we've heard from students where they've had specific issues happen to them. We've had um, students speak up in class on certain controversial topics. We have a member of our group who uh, corrected a guest lecturer about incorrect factual statements that that lecturer had made regarding the Kyle Rittenhouse case, actually. Um, this lecturer had said, oh, this was a guy who used two AK-47s to kill black people. Um, not factually- pretty blatantly, pretty blatantly false. Yeah, and so similarly for speaking up and correcting this lecture on this, um, the student faced the threat of disciplinary action being referred to the student conduct board. And so it's this kind of thing where the administration itself has these issues where free speech is not respected, but they don't really have any sort of pressure to be transparent about it either. Um, so there's kind of two realms. You have this administration level suppression of dissent or things that happen with like anti-harassment policies that get applied too broadly. Um, and we can talk more about that. But there's also a cultural issue, which I think is the more important one, which is it it it's fine if you have an administration that maybe is supportive of free speech and respects the First Amendment. But the larger issue really is that there's students that simply don't have the tolerance, don't have the understanding of why it's important to peer to hear people out, even if you vehemently disagree with them. And so it's addressing that cultural issue that I think is the greatest challenge that we have on our campus. And it's something that we're, you know, still trying to strategize on and see how best to tackle it. Hope oh, you're muted, Danielle. <laughs> I was trying to find that picture um, that someone posted where your Huskies for Liberty sign was ripped down and then someone wrote like, trans unite anarchy like yeah but like I, I, it was it blew my mind <laughs> yeah so that that happened very recently um we we put up posters saying uh transgender voices matter free speech protects minorities right which which is true through history this has been the case is that it's not really there as a principle to protect popular speech it does do that but the real intent of it is to not let minority voices be suppressed. And so we have some transgender members of our club uh, that are concerned about free speech. And we had some folks design these posters, put them up. But 
we have this interesting issue where I think, you know, for one reason or another, uh, people on campus and like most college campuses, it leans pretty heavily to the left. Um, see our club, they see free speech. And for whatever reason, that's coded as a right wing talking point. And I think there's many reasons why that may be. And we could talk about that. But it's led to this sort of knee jerk reaction where they assume that we're some sort of ultra traditional conservative club that's just masquerading as a broad free speech oriented group. Do you find that there's more, you know, kind of pushback on the free speech from the student body, from the professors, from the administrators, or is it just kind of all of the above? I think, interestingly enough, the most resistance does come from students. And there's data to back this up as well. FIRE did another study more recently that for the first time looked at faculty views on free speech, which is really valuable. And it's something that Sean Stevens from FIRE, when I spoke to him, said, man, if, if there's one flaw, uh, it's that we don't have enough data on faculty. And now they do. So I'm happy for him. But what that's found is that Faculty are concerned about free speech. They also don't feel comfortable necessarily speaking out of turn, speaking about controversial issues, even people that have tenure, this happens with. But it did find that um, in general, faculty are more tolerant of diverse viewpoints, are more, they have a greater understanding of the importance of free speech than the students do. And I think that's reflected on our campus as well. We've never really had an issue with faculty um, that I can think of at least, at least like in res direct response to us, there's those anecdotes about times students have been disciplined, but I think you're like rank and file professors. They, they're very concerned about this as well. Interesting. That is a different, that's a difficult question, right? It's, it's a whole lot easier to focus your, focus your attention on, you know, the administrative staff saying, okay, you guys are the problem. You guys need to change your rules about this when it's a cultural issue. That's a really difficult thing. What are the step? What are the things you are trying to do to kind of turn that tide to change that perception that well, free speech is just an alt right, you know, weapon to be used against people? Uh, what are you doing to change that? Yeah. So a lot of it has been, and it's been a challenge. But one of the things we're trying to do is point to examples that go the other direction, so to speak. Um, a lot of stuff happening in Florida right now that Ron DeSantis is doing to limit what can be taught at universities in regards to critical race theory or gender studies, these sorts of things. That's an example of the state imposing limitations on what can be taught in a university, which is, again, the point of a university is to leave no stone unturned, right? There really shouldn't be any limits on what can be discussed. Um, I think those examples are really valuable because they show that it it really has everything to do with who's in charge, right? So in Washington, at least in Seattle, there's a prominent left-wing culture here that's in the majority. And so if a student holds left-wing views, the threat of censorship seems less real to them, I think, because they're not in a place where it's their voices that are primarily the target of suppression. But if you go to somewhere else, that's not the case. Uh, and this stuff happens. I mean, let me think. West Texas A&M, I believe, um, their university president shut down a charity drag show that students were trying to run. Um, and this was a public school as well. And this was an especially crazy case because the university president in that case even said, 
it appears to me that the law of the land requires that I allow this. But my yeah. personal values tell me that this isn't something we should have. So we're going to ignore that. And so, you know, Fire launched a lawsuit against them. Probably the easiest it's lawsuit It's such a cut and dried case. I remember <laughs> yeah. reading about that story. Yeah. Um, another example, and this is great because this one is actually local or, or regional anyway, but Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. This is a private Christian university. Actually, I had some friends that went there a few years ago. Um, they, maybe like two weeks ago now, there was a an LGBT pride group on campus that wanted to hold a pride event, and they were calling it Pride Church, and it was going to have all sorts of different activities, like a little mini parade and, and like book sales and all this kind of thing. The university shut that down. Again, this is a private school, so they're legally they're able to do this. There aren't the same First Amendment considerations, but the university shut this down and said this is not in line with the ethos of the university, right? It's a religious school. So they said, we're not going to do this. What makes this interesting is the week prior, there was a Turning Point USA chapter at the same university at Whitworth that was going to have an event featuring, um, I cannot recall her name, but she's a North Korean defector that I guess is touring with, touring with Turning Point. Um, and the university shut that down too. And at the time, the the LGBT pride group celebrated that because they weren't fans of Turning Point. They said, yeah, like we don't want this stuff on our campus. And so this is an example where, again, this is a private institution. They're allowed to do that kind of thing. You can call them out for pointing to um, principle statements, like policy principle statements that Whitworth has saying that they will respect free speech. So you can call them inconsistent, even if it's not illegal. But the larger thing to look at there, I think, is this is a perfect example of why you need that culture of free speech. Because absent that, there's really nothing to prevent this sort of reciprocal back and forth. Each person takes a turn holding the stick and beating the other person with it. And free speech says, get rid of the stick entirely. And, and so this, I think, is... The sort of culture we're trying to promote, it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, but pointing to examples like this make it a little bit easier. Give us a few things we can point to and say, this is what we're talking about. This is why this is an issue. Now, Cole, you've done, you've had a couple talks at the university already, right? I know you were at one today. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your talk today that you were at? Sure. That was really interesting. Um, this was an event that was organized by Tony Gill, who's a professor here. And it was folks from the Words and Numbers podcast um, that came to sort of do a live version of their show. And it was followed by a sort of roundtable discussion with faculty. And the topic was just broadly speaking about free speech. Um, and so that was really interesting. There's quite a few members of faculty here that have gotten themselves in a little bit of hot water for things that they have said. Um, Cliff Mass might be an example of that. Cliff Mass is you know, celebrated in his field, uh, meteorologist um, that used to do uh, radio on the local NPR station. Um, but he was kicked out of that role a few years ago because of comments he had made in response, I believe, to the George Floyd, Floyd riots. Um, so there's a number of faculty at our school here who have had their own brushes with 
the free speech issue and and seen consequences because of that. So that was really interesting to see. Um, Stuart Regis, obviously another fairly high profile example of that, um, where you know a few years ago, like 2018 or something, uh, people were upset with him because he wrote a piece for Quillette called "Why Women Don't Code." And he was basically defending the position that James Damore took in the Google memo, um, saying that, you know, the reason we don't see women in STEM, it, it's not necessarily sexism, but it has to do with just natural differences in choices between men and women. The validity of that is like can be debated, but it's aside from the point. The point is that he made this article and there was all this uproar about it and a bunch of students wanted him fired. More recently, the big thing is that um, Stewart put a land acknowledgement statement into his course syllabus for one of the courses he taught that went against the spirit of what the university was trying to say um, pretty severely. Uh, and the university launched an investigation into him because of that. And, and due to that, uh, he's actually suing the university with fire's help for First Amendment infringements. Um, now, Jonathan, are you familiar with what a land acknowledgement is? That's uniquely no, Washington. I was going to ask because okay. I'm not familiar with that at all. So I, I, it comes from a good place. And I want to say that there was some collaboration with the indigenous folks, but there's like a, a very white savior, like band-aid that we're putting on the issue of us stealing the indigenous land. So we are acknowledging that that land is stolen. So we write, we will say land acknowledgement, like, we, you know, uh, before we start this rally or whatever, we just want to acknowledge that this land belongs to the Duwamish tribes of okay. whatever. Um, and okay. so in gotcha. a lot of classes, not a course, thing in Texas. And and so presumably that's in a lot of course syllabuses on campus then is just like a little acknowledgement that this okay. campus is on indigenous yeah. land. Is that correct? Paul? Yeah, it's like a footnote that you'll see. I shouldn't call it a footnote. It's just not very long. It's like one sentence. The UW has official copy that they want that they I want to say that they want uh, instructors to use. But the thing in play in this specific case um, is that the Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering, which is where Professor Regis is employed, um, had this sort of generic one that they were suggesting, like, instructors, please consider using this, but feel free to modify it if you want. So he did modify it. But what he ended up writing was, I acknowledge that by the labor theory of property, the Coast Salish people can claim almost no ownership of any of the land on which the UW sits. Obviously very controversial. I think it's pretty clear why right. it might be. And so it went against the intended spirit. But the point is, the university said, you can write what you want here. Like, this is just a suggestion. And a bunch of other professors did. They wrote their own version. They wrote an even stronger worded version of the one that UW wanted them to that went even further and said that, like, we are occupiers and all of this kind of thing. But so the issue at play here is that the university asked Stuart to change his acknowledgement, but not these other instructors. And so there's not a viewpoint neutral application here, which is where the First Amendment comes in and says there's a problem here. Um, it's it's a really interesting case, and I've been following it for some time now. Um, and 
yeah, it, that that's been like one of the bigger free speech, high profile, at least legally speaking, things that has happened on this campus recently. <laughs> when you're talking with people, what are the what's the pushback? Obviously, you said that you know a lot of people think you're just kind of right wing. But when you actually can engage with students, what do they tell you? What do they say is is a pushback against the idea that you should allow offensive speech uh, to be heard on campus? I think a lot of people go straight to the the hate speech thing, saying like there's certain speech that no, we shouldn't tolerate. There's speech that is inherently harmful simply by its utterance, this kind of thing, or there's topics that have been settled and we shouldn't be bringing them back up. Um, and so it essentially turns again into pitting somebody's the ability for somebody to not have to be uncomfortable versus someone's right to say what they want to say, even if it is uncomfortable. And so that really is the main thing is like this whole hate speech isn't free speech idea, which is both like it's not true, it's not accurate, but it's not enough to just say that because it's also, the larger question is what is hate speech? How do you decide what that means? Who gets to decide? Who gets to draw the line? And I think that is where people, the, the argument breaks down a little bit because like you really can't make a determination about that without resorting to some sort of artificial standard that has to be applied from the top down, at least in terms of content of opinion. It's different when we're talking about like incitement to violence or true threats or libel, things like this, that the First Amendment does uh, not protect, that, you know, courts have found these are where the limits are. But those limits are very, very narrow. And I think that's a good thing. And, and I think it's unfortunate that we live in a culture now where people are starting to uh, no longer see why that's a good thing, that we have as broad as possible a protection for free speech. Now, I, I wonder, Cole, I didn't really look at the fire, like the questions they were asking in that survey, but I wonder, did they um, differentiate between like, because the the question is, do you feel like you have to self censor, right, or something to that effect? Mm, yeah. Um. My question is, d does it ask if you feel like you have to self censor, or is it I choose to self censor? Like, is there a difference where it's like, well, I do it because I I just want to be a nice person. I don't do it because I have to. Like, some. Do you know if they? Know I think I, I see what you're difference? getting at. Yeah. I would have to. All of the data from this, like all of the raw data and every question they asked is publicly accessible if you go to their website. Okay. I don't have it in front of me. I know that each kind of realm of questioning did have a few different sort of nuanced versions of similar questions. I can't answer precisely, but I, I will say it, it, it sounds to me like what you're getting at is, is this like a self-imposed thing or is this really like a more peer pressure yeah kind of thing yeah that's an interesting question i don't have the data in front of me i'll have to look at it but i would say from experience that 
I mean, this is this is sort of what suppression is, right? Is you don't necessarily have to resort to using force to silence someone if you can simply create an atmosphere where they will willingly do that themselves, mm-hmm. right? It's a more efficient way at achieving the same goal. Um, and I would say, regardless of what someone's motivations are, it's still a problem if people don't feel like they can't, whether they want to or they like physically are being prevented mm-hmm. from speaking their mind. It's a problem either way because it means less light is being shed on a particular issue and other people are being deprived of alternate viewpoints and things that might help them expand their own horizons. Yeah, I always I always tend to push back a little bit on that just by saying like as free speech advocates, right? Like we don't want to go around being complete assholes. We do yeah. need to self-censor <laughs> a little bit, right? We need to prove that free speech advocates can hold back and and be decent people that's not all hate speech yeah well, right it's, it's the, free the right speech to... not freedom from the consequences of your right speech. yeah a, you know <laughs> their people have a right to disassociate from you to stop talking to you to walk away they don't you don't have a right to force people to listen mm-hmm. they can leave yeah, um and that that i think is an important important distinction definitely yeah freedom of association right that's that's really important and i think a lot of students that are kind of resistant to what we're saying will talk about that and say like, well, you can say what you want, but I don't have to like, that doesn't mean I have to like you. And it's like, you're right. But what it does mean is that you can't shut me up because I think this is the problem is like people will, will look, look at the poster ripping or the shouting down a speaker, like blocking people from going in to see an event. And they'll say, that's free speech too. I'm just using my speech in response to your speech. And they're missing the point because if if what you're doing by your actions is is not simply making the choice for yourself as an individual to not engage, to step away, but to also make that decision on behalf of other people that if if I don't like this, you can't like it either. If I don't want to see this, you can't see it either. That's that's where it becomes censorship. And so, yeah, it is true. You don't have to listen, but that's a choice you should make for yourself and you should allow other individuals to make that choice for themselves as well. Shouldn't yeah. make it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, you know, one of the examples I think of in terms of free speech is the Westboro Baptist Church going out and protesting mm-hmm. funerals of soldiers who have died. And one of the thing, one of the solutions to that, because obviously they have a legal right to do so, is that they is that you would have uh, there's a biker group that would go out and they would have these massive flags. They'd have music go blaring to cover them up. And so there's a difference between shutting up a speaker who has an audience that wants to listen to them and then shutting up a speaker who no one wants to listen to, or at least drowning them out of providing a barrier between the family and these protesters. And so there's, there's, I love this example because you have the example of the, the Westboro Baptist Church, horrifically awful human beings using their freedom of speech to say horrifically awful things. But then you have the biker gang in front of them saying, using their freedom of speech to put up the flags, play music, drown them out so that then you have the, the family can, you know, don't, doesn't have to pay attention to, to the other crowd. So I like that example because it shows a free speech can is the best defense against bad speech. Yeah, for sure. And look, this is something we talk about too, is that there are 
like counter speech really is the answer here. Mm -hmm. I think that term just simply gets misapplied when we're talking about like trying to deplatform people. Right. But it is the case that this is exactly our point is that the best response to speech that you think is harmful or hateful or whatever else isn't to stop that speech from happening, but to add more speech, right? Add your own voice to the conversation, uh, help contextualize what's there. Um, yeah. I think one, it's one of those things I've been in libertarian party messaging for, for three years or so now. And the idea, you know, shutting people up isn't the answer It's putting out a better message and convincing mm -hmm. more people with your own message and a kinder message or whatever the message may be is making sure that you actually put out a message that people listen to and can take to heart. And so you have all these, this bad, you know, you can have this bad messaging out there. The answer is to just shut it all down is to actually just provide an alternative and to make sure that people can see that they're not all libertarians think this way. It's right. You know, there is right. a spectrum on the libertarians, <laughs> you know, you can make all the jokes about it being on a spectrum that you want, but there is a spectrum to libertarianism that you want and you have to make sure that you're putting out a good message so that it does kind of take away from some of the bad, awful messaging that's out there. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't have said it better. Now, Colt, you, you guys are out at the, you guys are out at the university talking to people at least once a week, right? Like you're physically out at a table in it's red square, right? I want to call it the quad, but that's not. <laughs> there, there's both. We've got the quad, which is where oh, okay. right now or fairly recently was completely inundated with tourists because it was cherry blossom season. There's beautiful pink flowers everywhere. And then red square is kind of, yeah, the central brick plaza and campus. And we do both. There's a few different places around campus. But yeah, we're out there. We have a table with a banner. We, we hang up some some flags to fly and uh, we hand banners out, banners, flyers out to people and just let them know, here's what we're about. Here's some specific issues at UW. We love to talk about um, the Chicago statement. I don't know that that's come up yet. Um, but essentially, there was this uh, policy principle statement made by the University of Chicago at the end of 2014 uh, that basically says, hey, we're here for free speech. We support this as a university. It's not our job to act as speech police when there's controversy on campus. Students need to be, students, there is an expectation for them to be ready to come to class every day, ready to engage with different ideas, ideas they might not like. Um, and since that was adopted, um, it's by the University of Chicago. It's been adopted by, I think, as of today, like 99 universities across the country, we're trying to add UW to that list. Um, and we think that that would go a long way in helping improve the culture here, not because it has any sort of administrative power. It's not a policy like, like these are the rules now, but it's a statement of principle. And I think it can help students feel more comfortable. And the other thing that it's useful for is it means that you now have a public declaration that the university has made that they are committed to these principles. And therefore, if there's ever a time when they're inconsistent with those principles, you can point to that and call them out on it. So that's another thing we're trying to do on campus. How are you trying to do that? Is this a petition or? We do have a petition. So it's a, it's just a change.org petition. Um, people can find it. I think it's like change.org slash Chicago Statement UW or something like that. Um, so we've been flyering with links to that petition. We're raising awareness about it, talking about it. Um, eventually, we want to put legislation through our student government, the ASUW Student Senate, to 
uh, urge UW administration to formally adopt the statement. Um, and that can also be done through the faculty Senate too. We do have a number of faculty that are sympathetic to our concerns and we're in talks with them about maybe taking that route too. Do you have any members of Huskies for Liberty on the student Senate at the moment? Yes. Yeah. Um, so every RSO on campus is entitled to one Senator if they have at least 15 members, which we do. So we do have an official Senator. His name's Liam Solberg. Um, he's also the vice president of the club. And we also have a number of members that are just senators for other reasons. Like there, you can have senators for dorms. They're called hall senators. And there are constituent senators, which are simply people that have at least 15 people that have said, I want this person as my student government senator. It's kind of a weird system. But yeah, we do have uh, we have a decent number of people that are sympathetic to us in the Senate. Nice. And you guys have a convention coming up, right? Or yes, event. that's right. Yeah, tell us about that. Sure. So on May 12th, this is 6 p.m. It's called Free Speech Matters. This is going to be in the Walker Ames room of Kane Hall here on campus, which is right on Red Square. Uh, and the idea there really was just to have a proper discussion about these issues of free speech, academic freedom, civil discourse on campus. And we're starting out with a keynote speech by Aaron Turr from FIRE. Is coming down. Um, we're going to have interactive student kind of civil discourse mini game type activities going on. Margot Granath from Fire is helping us out with that. And we're also going to be having a sort of Q&A panel event featuring Aaron and also Katie Herzog, who is a local journalist that some people may be aware of, as well as Pedro Domingos, who is a professor emeritus of uh, computer science here at UW and also cares a lot about free speech. So it should be a lot of fun. That's going to be May 12th, 6 p.m. on campus, and it's free, open to the public, and people can uh, go to huskiesforliberty.org slash conference if they want more information on that. I was just about to ask where people could find stuff. So you've got the, <laughs> just put the web, website, uh, any social media uh, handles that you want to throw out there where people should follow you, kind of keep track of what you're what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So our website, like I mentioned, huskiesforliberty.org. We actually just launched that website for the longest time. That domain just pointed to our link tree, but now we have an awesome website fully fleshed out for people. And there's a button on there with information about the conference. You can also follow us on social media on both Twitter and Instagram. It's Huskies Liberty, no space or anything. Huskies for Liberty would not fit on Twitter. And so we decided to just keep it consistently. <laughs> Sacrifices had to be made. Yes. <laughs> and then you also have a weekly meeting on campus, right? For anyone who randomly finds you this way. Yeah. I would be so impressed if that happened too. Be like, man, we've got some base CLC people out here on campus. Let's go. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So right now, it, this changes every quarter. But this quarter for the spring, we're meeting Monday nights at 7 p.m. on campus in Savory Hall, room 130. That sounds fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for jumping in with us. I appreciate the conversation. It's really interesting to hear what's what's going on out there. Keep up the good work. Uh, love seeing it. For real. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you so much for having me on.